I received a letter from an old friend the other day. Uh, it was essentially a, uh, a poignant and uh, painful plea for help. Uh, he said, I want to know God. I want to love him. I want, as G.I. Packer speaks of it, to know the reality of the presence of Jesus Christ through the mediatorial work of his Holy Spirit. Yet I do not seem to want it enough, for I stand at the edge and merely look with longing. As someone said, the world is ablaze with God's glory, and only those with eyes to see take off their shoes. The rest sit around and pluck blackberries. I am at present a dissatisfied blackberry plucker. But I do not know how to take off my shoes. Help me at least to untie them. And I wrote back, Get rid of everything in your wardrobe that is not white. Stop sleeping on a soft pillow. Sell your musical instruments and stop eating white bread. Do not take warm baths and do not shave off your beard. To shave is to lie against him who created us because it is an attempt to improve upon his work. Uh, no, that is not what I wrote him back. <laughs> I'm just giving you a hard time. But that actually was a set of directives from the second century that was given to young Christian men who were intent upon finding God and growing in that relationship. And I can't help but wonder what Christians in the 22nd century will think about some of the directions that we give about following the Lord. I want to talk this morning about the, the secret of spirituality. Uh, how do we realize those deep hungers that we have for God? How do we come to know Him in an intimate and uh, profound sense? That's what it, that's what Paul is concerned with in this uh, section of First Timothy. Actually, I want to take you back into the third chapter for a moment. Uh, Jackson and that uh, fine message he delivered last week touched upon this passage. And uh, I don't want to do anything more than just comment on it briefly, but uh, this is a passage that lies between two sections of Scripture, neither of which can be understood very well without understanding this, uh, this section. In just uh, one verse, verse 16 of chapter 3, Paul delineates for us the secret of spirituality. You, you want to know how to know God? you want to know how to follow Him? Do you want to know how to be everything that God intends you to be? It, it's found in this one verse, verse 16. Paul says, Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. There are two questions that come to mind. What does he mean by godliness and what does he mean by mystery? Well, the word for godliness is a word that means literally good worship. That's uh, the Greek word is eusebeia. Eu means well or good. It's like our word euphemistic, euphoria. The word sibo means worship. It means good worship. It really has to do with the, with the human side of our relationship to God. I define it as spirituality, or as the Quakers used to say, soul-making. It's our side of the relationship. It's how we respond in worship to God. 
spirituality is a is a good term I think to use uh, as the equivalent or piety that old that old term piety. The word for mystery uh, basically means secrets. It's the word that's first found in the Greek translation of the book of Daniel, where Daniel became privy to certain secrets that no one else was aware of. It's, it's actually a loan word. It was taken from the mystery religions of the Persian world. It found their way into, into Greek culture. And Paul and the other writers of Scripture pick up this term mystery and use it somewhat tongue-in-cheek to refer to the uh, secrets that we get from God, things that cannot be known by, by discovery, by the scientific method, but can only be disclosed. Revelation, we would say. And that's what the Bible is. These are the secrets of God about life. He, every time you pick up the Bible and read it, God whispers in our ear, he says, I've got a secret for you. Something you would never know unless, it, unless it's disclosed. Paul, for example, talks about the mystery of iniquity. In First Thessalonians, interesting term. What, what is the secret of iniquity? Well, behind the, the human uh, doers of evil, there is an evil, malignant, a Machiavellian mind that's out to destroy and murder and ruin and and frustrate the human race. And you see, we we try to solve the problems of the human race by rules and regulations and laws, which may have some effect, but they can't really deal with the evil mind that's behind evil. Now that uh, that's a secret you wouldn't know apart from Revelation. That's why Paul calls it the mystery or the secret of lawlessness. That's why men are so lawless. Jesus talks about the mystery of the kingdom. His kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this world. It's invisible. can't be seen. You wouldn't know that if it wasn't revealed. And Paul here talks about the secret of spirituality. It's something you would not know unless God told you. And here in verse 16, he, he says, I've got a secret for you. This is the secret of spirituality. He appeared in a body. Some of the ancient translations uh, uh, insert here, God appeared in a body. Now that's probably not, that was probably not in Paul's original manuscript, but the later interpreters and translators of the Bible were right in putting it there because that's exactly what Paul had in mind. This is apparently an ancient creed, or it could be a hymn or a poem. It's poetic, it's rhythmic, it's clearly designed uh, in that way, structured in that way. And what Paul does is simply quote from a portion of a Christian hymn or creed, the the introduction to which is missing. So we have to supply something. What do you supply? Well, it's God. God was manifested in a body. He appeared in a body. He was vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by angels. He was preached among the nations. He was believed on in the world. He was taken up in glory. That's the mystery of, of piety. That's the secret of spirituality. He starts out by telling us that God appeared in a body. That's the incarnation. Now this, this incredible fact that uh, that little child that was born in Bethlehem was God himself come to earth. Uh, someone has said, the infinite became infinitesimally small. 
God contracted to a span. The creator of the universe become a, a, a little child. I, as some of you know, we went over to uh, the Seattle area last week to see our brand new grandson. One of the most handsome children I've ever seen. <laughs> Terribly smart, clever, and good. Incredible young man. And... Uh, I had my my first opportunity to to uh, hold him, and everybody went off and left me alone. They were all busy doing things, and and Jay David and I sat in the living room and got acquainted. I put my feet up on the coffee table and I propped him up on my knees, and and we just sat there and looked at each other, talked to each other. You know. One of his eyes would go that way, and one would go that way. You know. But we 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 connected. You know. And I couldn't help but think as I as I looked at him, you know, he, he, this frail, weak, desperately dependent little boy was what our Lord became. I, you know, I don't think we can ever get over that fact. How incredible it is that God actually entered into the human race, and not one, not not even someone who was uh, strong and able, but in the form of a little bitty child. Ancient people were afraid of God. They wouldn't even pronounce his name. They were always afraid that if they ever saw God, their goose was cooked. You know, there's that story of Manoah in the Bible, is Samson's father. The angel of the Lord appeared. It was God in the form of, of human flesh. And Manoah says to his wife, I've seen God, I'm going to die. She said, no, you're not going to die if you... God were going to kill you, he would have already killed you. She had much more wisdom than he on that occasion. But it was, that was the idea that people had. They didn't even want to touch the mountain where God revealed himself. They said to Moses, we don't want to see God. You go up and talk to him. We'll see if you make it. But when the angels said to the shepherds, don't fear, they were saying that God was about to appear in a form that no one could be afraid of. A little bitty baby. One writer, uh, Frederick Beekner, put it like this. The child is born in the night among beasts, the sweet breath and steaming dung of beasts, and nothing is ever the same again. Those who believe in God can never in a way be sure of him again. Once they have seen him in a stable, they can never be sure where, where he will appear or to what lengths he will go or to what ludicrous depths of self-humiliation he will descend in his wild pursuit of us. For those who believe in God, this means this birth that God himself is never safe from us. And maybe that's the dark side of Christmas, the terror of the silence. He comes in such a way that we can always turn him down. Or we can crack a baby's skull like an eggshell or nail him up when he gets too big for that. Incredible thing. That God became a man. There's simply no analogy for that in our human experience. You can't explain it. How can one thing be two? How can two things be one? How, how can one person combine in himself the, the full nature of God and the full nature of man? Christians throughout the first five centuries of, of church history tried to understand. They, they couldn't. Finally, all they could do was, was state it. That when God came to earth, he came in the form of a man who 
combined in himself, in perfect union, the nature of God and the nature of man. That's what Paul means when he said he he appeared uh, in a body. You say, well, so what? That's just cold theology. The various councils, the Council of Chalcedon and others have Spell this all out in the form of, of, of theology, but, but so what? I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what, what this means to me. It means that God became just like me, weak and frail and susceptible to all the temptations of, of this life, and therefore he understands. C.S. Lewis has written, God could, had he pleased, have been incarnate in a man of iron nerves. The stoic sort who lets no sigh escape him. Of his great humiliation, he chose to be incarnate in a man of delicate sensibilities who wept at the grave of Lazarus and sweated blood in Gethsemane. Otherwise, we would have missed the all-important help of knowing that he has faced all all that the weakest of us face, has shared not only the strength of our nature, but every weakness of it except sin. So I don't have to worry about feeling brave. I don't have to feel guilty when I feel feel afraid. I love that expression. Our Lord did not come in the form of a man who had iron nerves. He was just like me, weak and frail and susceptible to every assault, every temptation. He's just like me. Wonderful, wonderful manifestation of the love of God that he would go to those lengths to reach us. Just a simple statement. God appeared in a body, but oh, what a pregnant, profound statement. It bears so much meditation. And I, I think that's what this little hymn was. It was a little creedal statement that people could ponder and meditate and think about. It goes on to say he was vindicated by the Spirit. See, the, the Messiah, when he came, was to be the Holy One. He was the Righteous One cross ruined his reputation. They said he was uh, an insurrectionist, was guilty of sin. They put him on the cross. As Isaiah put it in his prediction of this event, we thought that he was suffering for his sin, but he was suffering for ours. And the resurrection is the means by which God vindicated him. He cleared his reputation of shame, guilt, blame. Peter says he was put to death in the flesh and he was made alive in the spirit. Uh, that's, just, that's shorthand for saying he was put to death in the flesh. He was put to death in the spirit. He was made alive in the flesh. He was made alive in the spirit. Do you understand what he's saying? That our Lord actually went to hell for us. He did not just die physically. He died spiritually. He experienced the horror of eternal separation from God for a moment of time. That, that, that's the explanation for the cry of dereliction from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He had never experienced separation from his father before. Now he was separated. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. He went to hell for us, but he was vindicated by the Spirit. He was raised from the dead. Paul says he was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. His name was clear. That's what, that's what Paul means when he says he was vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by angels. 
The word for angels uh, it really is, a, a, in fact, our word angels comes from this word. It's Greek word, angelos. The English word is just an anglicized form of it. It means messengers, basically. I don't know whether he's talking about the angels who who first announced his coming or whether he's talking about the women who came to the tomb and who became his messengers and went back to the apostles and told them that he had risen from the dead or maybe all of those who witnessed his resurrection that were in the upper room when he appeared. But they then became his evangelists. They went everywhere preaching to the nations, first of which was the centurion standing at the foot of the cross and said, surely this was the Son of God. And Paul says he was believed on in the world and then he was taken up into glory that's a, a short description of his present session seated at the right hand of the father where he ever lives Hebrews says to make intercession for us so what's Paul's point he says this is the secret of spirituality what's his point the secret of spirituality is Jesus it's centering on his person and on his work it's reflecting upon whom he is Thinking about him, pondering him, meditating on him, fellowshipping with him, spending time in contemplation, devotion, and worship. The conclusion you come to as you think about these uh, statements is the incredible measure of his love for us. I don't have to earn his love. I already have it. He's loved me from the very beginning. As a friend of mine says, hearing that, if I were a dog, I'd wag my tail. <laughs> Tremendous joy in just realizing that you're already loved by God. You could not be more loved. There is nothing you can do to enamor God more of you. He loves you as you are. He is going to change you. As you submit to his leadership, but he loves you just as you are. He could not love you more, and there is nothing you can do to make him love you more. He's already expressed his love in the cross. Brendan Manning, in his most recent book, tells a story about a young man who was out walking on the beach with his uncle, an 80-year-old man. Suddenly the old man began to run down the beach, skipping and jumping through the waves, and alarmed his nephew. He was afraid he'd harm himself and went running after him. He said, Uncle, what's, ma- what's the matter? He said, I'm so happy because my Abba is fond of me. That's what gives us joy. It's knowing that he's fond of us, that he's crazy about us. I don't know how many of you were here at uh, the uh, Discipleship Conference last last Monday, two Mondays ago. I happened to run into Don Doris. I don't know how many of you know Don. Uh, he's an old friend of mine. I've known Don for 16 years or more. He's a professional cowboy and professional coyote hunter. Interesting guy. He lives out in Cuna. I went uh, coyote hunting with Don once, and believe me, you have not lived until you have raced across the desert in a Jeep at terminal velocities (laughs) chasing a fleeing coyote. Don has MS. He was here in his electric uh, wheelchair, and uh, 
He said to me, I went elk hunting this year. I said, you did? How in the world did you do that? He said, well, they tied me on my horse. <laughs> Didn't have any feeling in his legs, from, uh, from his, in his body, from his waist down. No function. And I looked at, at Don. Here's this rugged, strong man. It's reduced to utter weakness. But his face was absolutely radiant with the love of Christ. You can't talk to him five minutes without realizing that he knows how deeply and profoundly he's loved by God. Don Doris met Christ when he was on a drunk. And he's been intoxicated with Christ ever since. Incredible man. Filled with the love of Christ, you see. That's the secret of spirituality. It's drawing near to him, worshiping him. Henry Nouwen, who's one of my favorite authors, says... Uh, Jesuit priest, actually, who used to teach at Harvard, but who is uh, an evangelical believer, whose writings have touched many all around the world. Early in his ministry, he went to Mother Teresa, and he asked her what he could do to draw closer to God. She said this, with her characteristic simplicity. Henry, she said, spend one hour a day in contemplation of Jesus, and you'll be all right. Spend one hour a day in contemplation of Jesus and you'll be all right. Now, she might say something different to you and me because it depends, I think, upon our age and our temperament and various other things. But that's the place to start, to spend ten minutes a day in contemplation of Jesus. Read the Gospels. You see, the, the, the Gospels show us the love of God and the character of Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. Some of you have trouble with God. You have very inexact notions of him. You've been crippled by uh, your past, by a distant or abusing father, or by some church or corrupt clergyman or some Christian who disappointed you. And so you have very inexact ideas of who God is. Look at Jesus. I've told you before, Carolyn's favorite expression, men will always disappoint you. Try Jesus. You read the Gospels. You see what God is like. You see God weeping over the things that Jesus weeps over. You see God loving the things that that Jesus loves. You see the Lord's concern, compassion for the morally untidy by noticing who our Lord hung out with. You want to know what God is like? Just, just look at Jesus. Contemplate him. Spend an hour in devotion to Christ and you'll be all right. You'll be all right. That's the secret of spirituality. Start with this little, this little hymn or creed or whatever it is. Write it out on a three-by-five card. Put it on your shaving mirror, your refrigerator, your dashboard. Just look at it. Think about what Jesus did. Think about his incredible love for you. That God appeared in a body for you and me. See, Augustine said, if it had only been one of us, he still would have come. Spend one hour a day in contemplation of Jesus. You'll be all right. See, that's the secret of drawing near to him. As you get closer to him, his nearness rubs off on you. You begin to reflect more and more of his character. And there is a, a gentle wisdom, a kindly righteousness that begins to pervade our thinking as a result. Now, Paul goes on in chapter 4 to talk about a spurious spirituality because there are, there's a bogus form of it. 
And he describes it this way. Chapter 4. The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated. It is put to God's intended use by the word of God in prayer. Now I want to get started on this passage. I'm not going to make it this morning all the way through, but we'll pick it up in some detail next week. But Just a couple of comments I want to make. First, Paul tells us that the times in which we live are going to be difficult times. The, the later times, the latter days, the last days, however they're described in the Bible, as I've said to you many times, are not some far-off uh, apocalyptic uh, period. It's not the last seven weeks of the church age. It's the age in which we live. The writer of Hebrews says, uh, God who spoke through the prophets in various ways has in these last days spoken unto us through his Son. These are the last days. We're living in them. These are the later times. Uh, Secondly, uh, he says that there's skullduggery afoot. The source of the difficulty are seducing spirits, deceiving spirits, and doctrines which demons contrive. He's saying that behind the scenes, in the unseen realm of spiritual things, there is another spirit at work that is inveighing against the secret of spirituality. It's the evil one, Satan. Who not only seduces us to do evil, he even deceives us into a, a phony religion. He, it, he, he doesn't mind if we're religious. Doesn't bother Satan at all, as long as it's the wrong kind of religion. The kind of religion that ironically leads us away from God. So behind all the mischief, behind all the false prophets, behind all the uh, teachers that are teaching a spurious view of spirituality is this uh, this demonic being and all of his malicious little helpers that are out to destroy us and to undermine our relationship with God. And they work through willing human agents. See, he says uh, these deceiving spirits work through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared with a a hot iron. He goes about looking for people, human beings, teachers, agents, through whom, he, through whom he can begin to promulgate these these errors. And he says, they're hypocrites. In other words, there's something wrong down inside. A hypocrite is someone who, who presents a different front than what is really going on. Something's wrong with the heart. They, they have impure motives. And they're liars. And at first, they know that they're lying, and then after a while, they're not aware that they're lying. Paul describes them in 2 Timothy as deceivers who are deceived. After a while, they begin to believe their own lies. Well, what are they saying? What they're saying is be very, very religious. 
See, Satan not only calls us to to self-indulgence, he calls us to self-discipline and asceticism. Refrain from marriage. See, that was a very popular way to become spiritual in Paul's day. Abstain from certain foods. Discipline your body. Uh, see, rules, regulations, and laws, rigmarole that are laid upon us that we are led to believe will lead us into a closer relationship with God. And they do not. They draw us away. And, it can, and Satan can even employ the good things of the spiritual life in order to lead us away from God. Anybody who tells you that the key to, secret, the key to spirituality is just to read the Bible more, get up at 5 o'clock in the morning and discipline your body, and, uh, and read the Bible, and memorize Scripture, and uh, give more and go to more church meetings and those sorts of things. There's nothing wrong with any of those things, you see. But if we think that that will make us a better person or that that will make us, uh, that God will be more enamored of us if we do these things, then we have become legalists and we've fallen into the lie of the evil one because it does not work. Legalism is the imposition of rules and regulations on us by which we believe that we will be rendered more favorable to God or that we will become better people. It doesn't work. The only change that's lasting is the change which our Lord works within us as we draw close to Him and we ask Him to change us. Legalism doesn't work. Paul says it doesn't. Uh, in Colossians, he says... Um, He says, certain things, shoulds and should nots and don'ts, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. That's the first problem. It doesn't work to lay the law upon yourself. The second problem with legalism is that it, it, it produces a righteousness that is exceedingly ugly. Shakespeare uh, in Othello has, I didn't have time to check this out, but I think it's Iago who says of Cassius, he has a daily beauty that makes me feel ugly. See, when we draw near to our Lord in worship and contemplation of him and we ask him to change us from the inside out, when our righteousness is a result of the work that he's producing in us, then there is a daily beauty about our life. But when we're trying to be a better person, when we're trying to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, when we're trying by rigorous effort, by laws and rules and regulations to be a better Christian, the result is a righteousness that is distasteful to others. It tends to be hard. It tends to harden our hearts. It's ugly. Mammy Oakham says, goodness is better than badness because it's nicer. But I must say that some goodness is not nice at all. There, there was a writer back in the medieval period, period St. Francis de Saul, who wrote a book entitled the, the Introduction to the Devout Life. And in it he has this to say, A man given to fasting thinks himself very devout if he fasts, although his heart may be filled with hatred. 
Much concerned with sobriety, he doesn't dare to wet his tongue with wine or even water. But he won't hesitate to drink deep of his neighbor's calamity. A woman thinks herself devout because she daily retires or recites a vast number of prayers. But after saying them, she utters the most disagreeable, arrogant, and harmful words at home and among her neighbors. Another person gladly takes a coin out of his purse and gives it to the poor, but he cannot extract kindness from his heart and forgive his enemies. Another forgives her enemies but never pays her creditors unless compelled to do so by force of law. All these people are usually considered to be devout, but they are by no means such. Saul's servants searched for David in his house, but Michal had put a statue in his bed, covered it with David's clothes, and thus led them to think that it was David lying there sick and sleeping. In the same manner, many persons clothe themselves with certain outward righteousness connected with holy devotion, and the world believes that they're truly devout and spiritual, wherein they are, in fact, nothing but copies and phantoms of devotion. But there is a winsome righteousness that our Lord produces as we submit more and more of our hearts to the Lord. The righteousness that he generates is appealing. Legalism is a, is a horrible thing. And it's something we must not permit to find its way into, into our church. Anytime we say to ourselves or, or we say to someone else, these are the things you must do to be spiritual. And the things that we tell others to do or anything other than devoting ourselves in worship to Christ, then we're legalists. Legalism kills people. It kills a church. It stifles the life of the church. If they're one of the signs of freedom, joy, and life in a church is a connectedness to the head, a willingness to rely upon Christ for every aspect of our being, believing that righteousness comes from Him and Him alone. So I've said before, he must work his magic upon us. We cannot change ourselves. The only God can change us. So the first thing we should we can say about legalism is that it simply doesn't work. The other thing that it does is that it hardens the heart, produces an ugly character. Paul Paul says that uh, another problem with legalism is that it gives us a very pessimistic and paranoid outlook on life. Notice the way he puts it in the last two verses of this uh, section. God created everything to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. Legalists are always afraid they're going to do something wrong. And the reason they're afraid is because they are afraid of God. They think that God does not love them, and therefore they must do something to gain his favor. And that is a treadmill that never ends, because you never know if you're getting everything right. That's why the Jews added endless laws upon laws, because they were always afraid that they weren't going to get something right. Do you understand what Paul is saying? Paul says that Christians ought to be the most optimistic people in the world. They ought to be the most joyful people in the world. 
They can look all around them and say, everything in creation is mine to enjoy. Everything. We'll have to elaborate on this next week, but that's the ethical theory that Scripture teaches. Paul even says in two places in, in 1 Corinthians, everything is lawful for me. Isn't that interesting? Everything is lawful for me. Well, what, what does he mean? Well, what he means is that there's nothing evil in itself. It's, it's impossible to think of anything in this world that is inherently evil, that is, evil in and of itself. Satan never created one thing. Only God is the creator. What Satan does is take the good things that God has created and he distorts them and twists them and makes them into something malevolent and, and evil. Your, your bodies are good in all their parts. Marriage is good. Sex is good. Food is good. It's all been given to us to enjoy. We must, as Paul says, put everything to its intended use through prayer and, and through the, uh, the judgment of the Word of God. And we'll talk more next week about what that means. But we need to understand that the whole world is ours to enjoy. Now, what that does is give us a, a freedom to follow the Lord. It gives us a freedom for him to, to build into us what James calls gentle wisdom. The wisdom that's from above, see, not from self-effort, is, that is pure and peaceable and gentle and full of good works, tolerant, understanding, kindly, firm, strong, but able to give and able to give up. I want to close by reading uh, a citation from one of George MacDonald's books, which I think best illustrates this gentle wisdom of, of which I speak. It's in his Cleric's Awakening, and it's a conversation between his young clergyman and a, uh, one of his elderly parishioners. It goes like this. Uh, the clergyman says, you smoke, don't you, Rogers? Well, sir, I can't deny it. It's not much I spend on tobacco anyway, is it, Dame? No, it beant, answered his wife. Uh, you don't think there's any harm in smoking a pipe, do you, sir? Not in the least, I answered with emphasis. You see, sir, he went on, not giving me time to prove how far I was from thinking there was any harm in it. You see, sir, sailors learn many ways they, they may be better without. I used to take my pan of grog with the rest of them, but I gave that up quite Cause it's how I don't want it now. Causes how, interrupted his wife, you spend the money on tea for me instead, you wicked old man to tell tales. Well, it takes my share of tea, old woman, and I, well, I takes my share of tea, old woman, and I'm sure it's a deal better for me. But to tell you the truth, sir, I was a little troubled on my mind about the tobacco, not knowing whether I ought to have it or not. For you see, the person that's, that's gone, the parson that's gone, didn't like it. As I could tell when he came into the door and me a smoking. Not as he said anything, for you see, I'm an old man, and I dare say that kept him quiet. But I did hear him blow up a young chap in the village he came upon with a pipe in his mouth. He did give him a thundering broadside, to be sure. So I was in two minds whether I ought to be on with my pipe or not. And how did you settle the question, Rogers? Why, I followed my own chart, sir.
he said. Quite right. One mustn't mind too much what other people think. That's not what I meant, sir. What do you mean then? I should like to know. Well, sir, I mean that I said to myself, now, old Rogers, what do you think the Lord would say about this here tobacco business? And what did you think he would say? Well, sir, I thought he would say, Oh, Rogers, have your tobacco. Only mind you don't grumble when you ain't got none. And that, for me, goes right to the heart of the issue. See, what God wants to do is deal with the depths of our hearts. And he can only do that when we bring our hearts to him in devotion and in worship. 